Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Marcus Buckingham, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so good. So glad we were able to catch up right before the recording. Your new book, Love and Work. Uh, what I love about this book, there's so much to love about a book that's, that's entitled Love and Work. But for me, it gets back to the basics of almost like that childlike wonder of when you were excited about all the things you did. Why was it that you decided to throw your heart and soul into a book that's really focused on finding what energizes and empowers and makes you love your job? Well, a few reasons. One of them is, like many people over the last two or three years, you've had an opportunity to stop and look in the mirror and decide what sort of mark you want to leave on the world. And I lost my dad. I uh, lost my marriage. I sold my company. I experienced that sort of alone time with the pandemic looking in the mirror. I had all of that. And at some point, you just decide, uh, not that I haven't been enjoying what I've been contributing thus far in my life, but we're not here for a very long time. And so I thought to myself, if, if you get to the end and you haven't written something, what would be the thing that you would write? And I think this book is that book. It's taking us to the place where when you're looking at your two kids, and I have two kids, and you think to yourself, what sort of life do you want them to live? What sort of impact do you want them to have? The answer that comes back is you, you want them to live a first-rate version of their own life. You want them to have a way of identifying that which they love, and then figuring out a way to contribute it. We know that loveless excellence is an oxymoron. There's no excellence without love. There's no, there's no creativity. There's no resilience. There's no innovation without love. So how can I help my kids get in touch with what they love and then figure out how to turn it into something useful, which sounds sort of idealistic in some respects. But of course, when you look at the most effective people and you look at the people that have lived a full and happy life, they've done precisely that. And so this book, in a sense, is a is a peon to to my kids and what sort of world, whether it's school or whether it's college or whether it's work, what sort of world would help them to identify that which they love and turn it into contribution. At the moment, clearly, when we look at the amount of Adderall being taken and Xanax to tone down the Adderall and the Wellbutrin to snap people up and all the pharmacological solutions that we're providing to our, our college students and our graduates and our workers to alleviate their anxiety i guess we could keep just going on down that path but yeah. it sure seemed to me as though there was something better that we could do to help my kids and everyone else to find what they love and turn it into contribution 
So, you know, this is the Leader Chat Podcast, so we're going to talk a lot about work, but there's always the hope that people will take some of the, the ideas and, and, and bring them into their, their, their life as well. And, and, but for a lot of people, work is life. So when you think about love at work, what does that look like? What is, you know, how do you define love at work? Well, when you look at the most successful people, first of all, we need to be clear that contrary to what everyone says, the most effective people don't do what they love. Yeah. There's no data anyway that I have that says that the most effective people in any role love all that they do. There's, there's just no data showing that. There is a lot of data, though, that shows that the most effective people find love in what they do. They find specific activities or moments or interactions or situations that they love, and they take those incredibly seriously. They know in a sense that their love drives appetite, it drives learning, it drives contribution, it drives innovation, it drives all that good stuff. So every day for them, they're looking for activities that they love. Uh, in fact, if you look at all the questions you can ask highly effective people that in terms of their experience at work, the, the two real big ones that drive whether or not you're truly effective aren't questions that deal with mission or purpose or recognition or development. Although those are all very important, the questions that really separate highly effective from less effective people are, um, do you have a chance to use your strengths every day at work? And were you excited to go to work every day last week? Well, those questions are dealing specifically with, with every day. Every day, do you find something at work that you love? And the threshold level, at least from research coming out of the Mayo Clinic, seems to be 20%. When they were studying burnout in doctors and nurses, it it was pretty clear that once you got above 20%, every day you're finding activities that you love 20% of the time, not 100%, not 80%, just 20% of the time. If you got above that threshold, all the other outcomes that you want seem to suddenly occur in terms of performance, retention, resilience, 20%. If you get below 20%, Chad, in 19, 18, 17, 16, there's almost a perfect linear 1% increase in mm. burnout risk. Yeah. So it, if, if you can find love in what you do for 20% of your time every day, as, as straightforward as that sounds, um, that's actually the miracle secret of the world's most effective people. They take their love seriously. They figure out what those particular moments or situations or interactions are. And then they in very intentionally ensure that each day they're searching for those so that they can weave them into contribution. We are at probably the most mobile, the most uh, just, we're, we're at a point in, 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 in our world where jobs can be come and gone, you know, that they, they, they can, can, it, it, you're as much, it, just get a new computer, turn them on a new terminal and the new, and the job is there. And in some cases there's great value in that. And in other cases, I think it's very scary. What I, what I like about this book is you're not saying you know, look at your job. You don't love it. Go find a job you love. You're basically saying the love could be there if you have the opportunities to make some tweaks and changes, right? So how much is, has, has what has changed in our workplace is affecting what you're advocating right now? Well, you're absolutely right. It's, if you ask people, do you have the freedom to maneuver to fit your job better? 73% of people agree or strongly agree that they do. That does mean that 27% of people are kind of locked in. Maybe they're in the wrong role. And in a labor market as tight as this, they probably have more choice than ever in terms of what other roles they might go seek out. 
But for many of us, we say we have the freedom to maneuver. And yet, if you actually ask people, do you have a chance to do what you love every day um, or something that you love every day, you're only at about 16, 17% of people strongly agreeing that they do. So you've got an attitude behavior consistency problem. We know we can maneuver our jobs to fit ourselves better. We just don't do it. So in terms of today, it, it sure feels as though what the first thing we need to do, rather than you know, the great resignation, rather than up and leaving the job that we're currently in, maybe the first thing that we should do is try to change our mindset around our own life. Normally, we think of our own life as sort of every day starts off with a rollover to-do list from yesterday. And we think that every day is just something to get through. We got to get through the day. And of course, some part of that is right. But in a sense, your day is trying to put on a show for you every day. It's trying to show you which activities you love, which moments you love, where time flies by. If you could start every day just thinking, well, what are those moments today? What are those activities? And the, and the clues, obviously, are, are right there in front of us. I mean, activities that you look forward to before you do them, that's a good clue. Activities where when you're doing them, time seems to fly by and you vanish into what you're doing. It feels like five minutes, but you look up, it's been yeah. 25 minutes, like yeah. that. Activities where when you're doing them, the steps fall away and you just look like you're, you're fluid and there's, mass, there's almost innate mastery in what you're doing. Th that, that's another great clue. So you've got, you've got clues every day. And Chad, in the book, the analogy I use is threads. Yeah. So if you look at a tapestry, it looks like a picture from far away. But when you get close, it's made up of many, many, many thousands of threads. Well, a Tuesday is like that. You think of Tuesday as just Tuesday, but it actually isn't just Tuesday. It's, it's thousands of different stimuli that hit you every day. Thousands of different threads, activities, moments, situations, contexts, thousands of them. Some are black, white, gray, yellow, blue. They lift you up a little. They lift you down a little. Uh, but some of them are red, red threads. Activities that you love are like red threads. And what that Mayo Clinic data suggests is that you don't need a fully red quilt. You don't. You need 20% you need red threads. So today, rather than upping and leaving your job right away, the first thing you should do is, is think about, do you know what your red threads are today? Do you know what those activities are? Because I'm sorry, if you go to, an, um, if you go to another job, if you up and run to another job, which as you said, we, we can all do today, Chad. But if you do that, wherever you go, there you are. Yes. So what are you bringing with you? What kind of self-mastery are you bringing with you? Do you know how to identify those red threads every day for you and then weave them into contribution? Because you'll never succeed if you don't anywhere, wherever you go. I mean, that's what, that's what the data reveal. So for all of us, it's like, hey, uh, before we run and run and run and run, stop for a second and think about what are those red threads of yours today and then tomorrow and then the next day. If you can start to identify those and then really turn them into work, well, wow, that's a, that's a self-mastery capability that you'll be able to take with you forever which may mean that you might want to leave and get a different role. But before you do that, at least figure out where you derive love from the activities that life is trying to show you every single day. You and I are going to talk a little bit later about some, some ways to kind of mechanize this, you know, how to like be more, more uh, uh, deliberate in our approach at work and in our approach, at, you know, we can do it, talk about it at home and our relationships, but let's talk about the things that get in the way right now. Cause that's, you know, I think about, 
it's very rare a person doesn't come into a new role, not even a new job, but a new role, and, and they're in, they're not enthusiastic. They're usually pretty enthusiastic, and then life kind of smacks them upside the head, and then some of that enthusiasm wanes. In a lot of the cases, they don't know what they don't know, so that can also be an issue because they're getting into the job. But when you talk about having those red threads and creating those opportunities to find love in your day-to-day, what are some things that that we need to be, because I believe more than anything in this podcast series, awareness is the greatest gift we have. If we know something's out there, then we can either run through that stop sign or or acknowledge it, right? And so the awareness of some of these, these, as you call them, the seven devils, what are the things that gets in the way and kind of can numb us to the love and the opportunities for us to really thrive on the job? Well, yeah. So in the in the middle of the book, we if you think about it, the whole book is a journey to the heart of you. And the question for us all is, why do we all get so lost? Why are so many of us so anxious? Why are so many of us so disengaged? Why are resilience levels so low? And it's not just the pandemic. This existed pre-pandemic. Yeah. Why, why do we get lost? When we were nine, if somebody said, when was the last time a day flew by, we'd been able to tell you. As you said, to go back to that childlike state of like, what are the particular things where you just light up when you're doing them? Well, you knew that at nine, at eight, but somewhere between eight and nine and today, you get totally lost. And and so in the book, we go through and look at these seven devils that kind of, and as the author, Catherine Goldstein said, the, the most powerful thing about the devil is the devil doesn't think it's the devil. It thinks it's a force for good. So there's a lot of there's a lot of devils that come and devilishly try to whisper in your ear with all the best intentions in the world. And yet they lead you far, far astray. Um, here's, here's a couple of them. Uh, one is that um, basically you're told that your identity, who you really are, is derived mostly from which particular groups you're a part of. So whether it's gender, whether it's nationality, whether it's um, sexual orientation, or whether it's religion or race or you're told that your identity is, is from those things, or maybe from your biography, from what happened to you when you grew up. So social psychology and psychology is preoccupied with those two things. What groups are you a part of? And then what happened to you growing up? Um, as though you are who you are because of what you share with a bunch of other people or because of what happened to you with your parents or your, in your childhood. And, and no one could ever deny that some part of your identity is tied to your groups, and some part of your identity is tied to your biography. But the real question for all of us would be, why are you different than your sister? Why are you different than your brother? Why do you find things interesting that they didn't? Why do you laugh at things that they didn't? Why is your sense of humor different than theirs? Why is your impatience caused by different things than theirs? Why, Why are you different from the people who you grew up in the same house with? And, And that question for us is, most of the time it's answered by saying there's nothing inside you. There's nothing unique about you. In fact, we should take, you know, from Carol Dweck's work, we should take a growth mindset and we should say, you can be anything. There's nothing fixed about you at all. And yet, and yet the weird part about that, despite how uplifting that feels and no knock on Carol's work, but despite how uplifting that feels, we all know that it's not true, that there's no amount of stress and strain and training and practice and 10,000 hours that can turn me into my brother. None. Like mm-hmm. I can become a more intelligent version of me, but I can't become him. So, so one of the first things that we need to be uh, really cognizant of is y- you have, by the time you're 19 years old, a hundred trillion synaptic connections in your brain, a hundred trillion. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of your uniqueness. 
And that's not caused by what gender you are or by what nationality you are. It's caused by the clash of the chromosomes of your parents' genes. And it's not caused by what happened to you as a child. It's caused by that clash of the chromosomes, which creates in you this pattern of synaptic connections that is utterly, completely unique to you and, and leads you to love some things and loathe others, lean into some things, be bored by others. That's what it creates. And so when you, when you, when you look at the world out there, it tells you that, for example, Serena and Venus Williams became who they are because of their dad. And that, that's, that's, what, that, that's what explains them. That, that he created them or that, or that George Clooney became an actor because of his, as he said many times, because of his famous aunt, Rosemary Clooney. That was a massive inspiration for him. Or that <laughs> Neil Armstrong became an astronaut because his dad told him to get his pilot's license before his driver's license. And all of those facts are true. But what you'd really want if you were going to build a life for yourself that was really um, authentic to you, you'd want to know why does Venus play tennis so differently than Serena? Why are their motivations different? Their styles different? The way they finish points different? Why are they different from one another? Why did George Clooney have a sister who also had an aunt called Rosemary Clooney? Um, but his sister Ada isn't an actress, she's an accountant specializing in payroll. Um, Neil Armstrong had a brother called Dean. Hmm. Dean Armstrong was a bank manager. Nothing wrong with being a bank manager, but why, hmm. why, why did those different siblings have such different loves, different appetites, different trajectories, different challenges? Why that? And what no one really helps you know is that that, that difference between two people raised in the same house is a beautiful, inevitable thing. And that one of your greatest challenges in life is to figure out of those trillions of synaptic connections, what does that cause you to love? What does that cause you to find your red threads in? Because that's you. And, and we don't, gosh, we just don't do very much on that for you. We don't, we give you 10 years of geometry because <laughs> somebody at some point decided 10 years of geometry for students is a really important thing. <laughs> we give you no years on you. We don't give you a language to talk about your uniqueness, your individual difference at all. Now you could take, you can take Strength Finder or Myers Briggs or Stand Out or take the Enneagram. I mean, we take sort of quizzes and it's kind of fun, but we don't give you ten years on how to use the regular loves of your day to day life to figure out who you are and how to contribute it. In fact, you're told almost from the get go that there's nothing in there. There's no you in there. I give the initial copy of this. Chad to a whole bunch of 20 and 30 year olds just for their reaction. And they all came back and the, the strongest reaction was, I don't have any loves in me. What are you talking about? I, there's nothing in there. I have no way to access that. I don't even know what you're talking about because the, all the messages we get are you are created by the stories that you tell yourself about your childhood or about which groups yeah. you're a part of. So that's a, that's a really, really big one that leads you off into the forest and gets you lost from yourself. Because somebody from the get-go with very good intentions says, there's no point looking for you because there's no you in there to start with. And we could talk about some of the others if you want, but that's the that's the uh, biggest one almost. Yeah, it's heavy. Why am I even looking? It's heavy. I mean, you, you say, you know, you, you are not who you're, where you're from. You're not, you are not where you're from. And, I, and I've done a lot of my own personal work for a long time listeners. Like I have, I have tried to un, un, 
pack the armor that has built up on me over the years from my childhood, you know, kind of working through that. You are not that person. But so, yeah, so to divine yourself that way is is very heavy because it, it, it requires a lot more. But you're basically saying to not don't beat yourself up so much and don't look for the answers. They're not always going to be there. Well, actually, I suppose I'm pushing through that and saying, listen, whatever happened to you in your childhood are the clouds in front of the sun. They're not yes. the sun. Yes. They're the clouds. Yes. yes. So push through the clouds because early on you lent into some things you found some things where time flew by and you didn't know why and you were five years old and then you were six years old and you were seven years old and you found that you were different from your brother or your sister you were and you knew that you were you couldn't have articulated it but you weren't the same as them you didn't have a brain that worked the same way as them you didn't build relationships in the same way that they did you did your own thing now unfortunately when the moment you go to school and this is another one of those devils because we say that it's the it's the myth of completeness. That's that's a, a powerful devil in your ear saying, listen, not only is there nothing in there, but when you go to school, from the moment you go to school, the, the your learning and your development will all be outside in, outside in. There are facts and knowledge and so forth that we will pour into you. And then we will test you to see how much of it you've retained. And the person who is the best student is the one who has retained the most. They will be the most complete. And then you graduate with a perfect GPA, which is the epitome of stupid data that sort of conveys to a student that the best student is the most complete one. That then goes all the way through college. Then we graduate into the world of work. And then we say to you, okay, in this job, um, here are all of the skills and attributes and competencies you're supposed to have. We defined these before you joined. So your uniqueness that's so, so important to you at five and six Um, It's not only irrelevant to you hitting these or being measured against these models of skills or competencies, but it's actually an impediment. Your uniqueness is an impediment to you displaying these skills or attributes or competencies. So you go into the world of work and everything's focused on not how intelligently you've cultivated your loves, but instead how closely you've matched the model. So that's another one of these devils is you're not lost. You're actually hidden. You are systematically and intentionally hidden by school, by college, and by work. Let's not beat around the bush, Chad. The reason why we've got so much anxiety, so much mental uh, illness and sickness through college and work is because we are intentionally telling people that we want to separate you from yourself. We do not want to help you intelligently cultivate and contribute yourself I mean, the best managers do, and some of the best teachers you've ever met do, but they're bucking the system. The system is set up to say, you and all of your beautiful idiosyncrasy is really annoying to us, and we want to grind it down. And I'm, I mean, gosh, anyone who's ever had a kid go through school will know I'm not exaggerating. And anyone who's ever looked at a human capital management system or an HR system or performance management or review system in, in the world of work will know I'm not exaggerating. That's the way the world works. The myth of completeness completely smothers you. And then, of course, we bump into the, just one other myth, feedbacking, that, that, that your uniqueness is so irrelevant to us that we're going to build systems which basically say, I'm going to measure you against how complete you are. And then when I find the gaps, I'm going to give you feedback where I'm basically telling you what you need to do in order to be more complete. And then we tell you that if you don't like me giving you the feedback, then that's on you. 
because you need to learn how to receive critical feedback willingly. And unfortunately, it's, it's just the epitome of arrogance. That's not the way human beings learn, first of all, me taking your stuff in and then trying to turn it into me. That's not the way that, that I learn. But also, th- that's, that's not what excellence is for me. Being complete to some prefabricated model of this job, that isn't how you thrive. That isn't. So the whole thing, when you start looking at these devils, you're like, well, they don't look devilish. Surely Mm. feedback is a good thing. And surely telling people that they should have an utterly growth mindset, that must be a good thing. But you peel the onion on it and it's not, it's just pernicious and super damaging. So I absolutely loved the last time you were on the podcast, your nine lies about work. It, just, it was just so provocative, every single one. And we're going to get to the provocative part about our conversation today. And I'll lead it off by saying, Ken Blanchard likes to say, feedback is the breakfast of champions. But uh, Marcus Buckingham says, um, the road to hell is paved with other people's advice. <laughs> so help me help me make sense of of two uh, two people that I respect and I and, and that would be pretty much on the the Mount Rushmore of leadership gurus. Well, it, I mean, this could be a language issue because when you look at feedback, when I'm saying feedback, when I say feedback, I mean two things: somebody saying to you, "I know the truth about you, and you don't." So I'm going to tell you who you are, and tell you what you're doing right and wrong. And then second, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to fix it. So I don't exactly know how Ken's talking about feedback. He might just be talking about pay attention to other people's reaction to you. So Mm. this is an important distinction, a distinction between feedback and reaction. Um, If I say to you, Chad, hey, Chad, I didn't understand what you said in that email. I just didn't get it. Well, I didn't really like that presentation. I I just didn't connect with it. That's my reaction. I own my reaction. I'm a valid reporter of my reaction. I know what I felt. You can't come into me and say, Marcus, well, you did like that presentation because (laughs) I know what I did and didn't like. That's my reaction. And my reaction is the breakfast of champions because you need to know kind of what kind of reaction you're creating in other people. And you need to listen to their reaction. Yelp reviews are a reaction. And people are reliable. A review on Amazon is a reaction. I liked it. I didn't like it. I liked it. I didn't like it. That is so legit. And from a psychometric standpoint, it's also methodologically valid. I am a reliable rater of my own experience. That's not feedback, though. Feedback is me telling you, hey, listen, Chad, you have blind spots. I'm going to tell you your blind spots. I'm going to tell you who you are. Well, it turns out we've known for 40 years, human beings are terrible at doing that. I cannot rate you. As we wrote about in Nine Lies, methodologically, I, when I rate you on something, most of the variation in my rating on growth orientation or executive presence or customer focus or whatever I'm rating you on, the variation in that is caused by me, not by you. It's not, I'm not seeing you and rating you objectively. I'm actually just, I have what's called an idiosyncratic rater. I'm an idiosyncratic rater of you. And we know that because when I look at somebody else and rate them and then somebody else and rate them, my ratings should move because I'm looking at different people. But it turns out my ratings don't move. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not seeing the people. My ratings of other people actually move with me. I'm just, <laughs> if we think a lot of these rating systems are 
are windows, but they're not, they're mirrors. I'm just me bouncing me back at me. So that's the first thing about feedback that's wrong. I don't see you. I, I see my own reactions, but I don't see who you are objectively. I can't see your blind spots. I can't. Right. So that's the first thing. I, I don't own the truth about you. Like, for example, when it comes to your red threads, I'm colorblind. I, I don't know what's going on inside your head in terms of what you are and how you do what you do or how you feel about it. And the second part of feedback is, is then me giving you advice. <clears throat> Here's what you should do, Chad. Here's what you should do. Well, that's just me telling you what I would do. So my so much of feedback turns into you'd be better if only you were more like me. So here's what you should do. And unfortunately, that's not how learning happens. And anybody who's ever been a teacher, any, everyone who's ever been, been a parent knows this. You, you don't pour your knowledge into someone and then have it live in a little drawer in their brain, and then it changes their behavior. That's not how learning works. Learning is insight. All learning is insight. So the only thing I can do is try to create the conditions in which you learn. I can't go tell you what to do because your way isn't going to be my way. If you've ever tried to manage salespeople, you'll know this, Chad. You trying to tell someone how to be persuasive and compelling and authentic to a customer. Yeah, you can't do that. They have to find their way of, of achieving those outcomes. So if, if Ken is talking about listening intently to people's reaction to you and that that's the breakfast of champions, then heck yes, all the data would support that. But if you go into that other realm of, I know the truth about you, and then second, I'm going to tell you what to do to be mm. better, that's when everything starts falling apart and I smother you with me. I love that. And that was very clear. And yes, I, I wasn't trying to pitch you against Ken. That's the last thing I want to do on the podcast, but I do. <laughs> I thought that was just, I love, it jumped out at me and I appreciated that. So all right, we've got time for just a couple more questions. So let's talk about how to kind of mechanize this. So, so if somebody's gone through and listened to the last 20 minutes of our conversation and they're thinking, okay, now what, like, how do I show up differently on Monday? How do I, how do I take some very implicit steps to to harness, unleash, to, to find ways that, that those red that threads can appear more readily where I am currently. How would, you, how would you coach somebody to kind of start that process off? Well, the first thing is I would say, start off every day believing that you can find them. Mm. So the first part is be intentional. Attitude, yeah. Right? It's like, if you wake up going, oh my gosh, here are the 14 things I got to get done, which you do have to get them done, but add to your ritual, what are the red threads I'm going to find today? Then nourishment, nothing healthy in nature is balanced. You're not looking for work-life balance. Balance is stasis. Instead, you're looking for motion. You're looking to move through every day, every day. In all aspects of your day, you're going to move through every day and draw nourishment from every day. So every day you're starting off going, what are the red threads? Second, the clues to those threads are the three most powerful are before you do it, what are you positively looking forward to? While you're doing it, when does time fly by and you vanish? And third, that the doing of it gives you a sense of mastery, that it, you feel not that you're drained, but you feel you're invigorated. So there's mastery in it, just natural, a feeling of this is me. Look for those every day. There's a red thread questionnaire in the book. I think it's on page 72, which is like 10 questions to ask yourself over and above those clues. If those clues aren't enough for you, 
then there are 10 questions in here. Questions like, when was the last time you noticed something that no one else did? When was the last time that someone had to drag you away from doing something you were so into it? When was the last time you were singled out for praise? Questions like that, that you can push yourself to go into the detail of, oh, well, oh, oh, well. So we can, we can help you and nudge you to identify what those red threads might be. Then, frankly, I would, I, I called them in the book love notes because I couldn't think of a, <laughs> another way to name them. But can you write for yourself three sentences that just start with a sentence stem? I love it when. I love it when. And then finish the sentence where the next word is a verb that you're doing. I love it when I'm doing what? Not when something's happening to you or when someone's doing something to you. Like I love it when someone praises me. No. What, what are you doing? So can you write three sentences? I love it when what? Um, and those for you are, those are for you today. Those are, those are three really good red threads for you. Um, moving forward then, can you take a week, just take a pad around with you for a week, mm. draw a line down the middle of it, and then write loved it at the top of one line and loathed it at the top of the other. Take it around with you for a week. Anytime you see any one of the three signs of a red thread, write it down. Actual activity that you're doing. So you can inventory a week. You can use a week to show you what your loves are. And then obviously moving forward, once you've got into that rhythm of like, wait a minute. Yeah, my life is trying to put on a show for me every day. My, my own loves, if you like, are decoding me. Huh. Then you could start saying to yourself um, moving forward, but maybe one day next week, maybe one day, maybe one day I I overload on red threads in the morning or the afternoon or for two hours okay. or whatever it is. And I, and I, I, I deliberately tilt my world so that I've got more red threads on this particular day. Maybe one time I'm taking a red thread. That's a natural thing for me. And I'm, I'm saying, what is the skill or competency I can apply to that? So I have a friend over here who's, who's over, over the years, just got fascinated by why people open emails and um, was responsible for building a community of people and was just really, really good at, writing um, subject lines so people would open emails right. and just loved it, just loved that. So can you then go learn Eloqua? Yes, you can. You could learn Eloqua, which is a email marketing system. Um, and you could take that natural red thread and turn it into an actual competency that people are like, whoa, you've taken something that you naturally love and you combined it with a specific technology and, and a skill and you've turned it into something that's incredibly valuable. Can you then over time start thinking about roles in which that combination of loves turned into skilled where maybe your role becomes that where people now say on this team we need her to come in and do that because holy moly she's actually taking it really seriously so all of this is like this is obviously an iterative journey starting with picking out your red threads and then over time, you're just figuring out ways to weave them into the fabric of what you do on the team. And some of the examples of what I just gave, there's obviously many more of what people can do to go, yeah. let me weave this into the fabric of my life. So it feels like my life and not a second rate version of someone else's. All right, we've got time for just the, the final question. I always like to ask this just to have you kind of put thoughts to all of this time and effort that you have uh, put into putting this amazing book together, Love and Work, I highly recommend it to our listeners. What's the one thing, Marcus, that you'd like our listeners to kind of take away from our conversation today? 
I would say don't put pressure on yourself to find your calling or find your purpose. The two least engaged, least resilient professions in the world are teachers and nurses, two professions where their purpose is so clear. They're, to use Simon's term, they, they, they know their why. And there's obviously, there's nothing wrong with finding your why. And that's a great place to start, but it's not enough, which is why nurses and teachers whose purpose is so clear, whose calling may be so clear, they're so deeply disengaged because in the end, the what you're doing every day, what always trumps the why in the end. If you so believe in something, but the actual activities that you're filling your day with are loveless, you have no red threads day after day after day, you've forgotten or lost attention to, or don't even believe in the fact that you've got unique loves that could be seen only by you and woven into contribution only by you. You've forgotten that, or the world has told you that that's not true, that you don't have them. Then in the end, you will, like, like all those wonderful teachers and nurses, you'll burn up. You've got to find love in what you do every day, the activities that you do. I'm not saying relationships aren't important, they are, because you develop in response to another human being. And I'm not saying your mission or purpose isn't important, it is. But in order to sustain yourself, life's given you nourishment every day in the form of a weird, weird, weird combination of activities or moments, situations that you love. And they're not shared by anyone. You're you, and the only you that there is, your category of one. So if you want to live a full life that feels like yours, if you want to grow, um, then you will take super seriously that your life is showing you what you love and the unique things that you love each and every day. If you can, if you can really take that seriously and start looking for the clues tomorrow, just look tomorrow. They're humble, but they're specific, they're detailed, and they're yours. If you can believe that tomorrow, you'll start living a life that feels fully like your, like your own. And, and, and you won't be doing it to be narcissistic. You'll be doing it so that you can weave those loves into contribution, love and work. It's not love for you. It's love for others. It's love to turn into something valuable for others. And, and you can do that. And I hope, dearly hope, that this book can show you how. Marcus Buckingham, thank you so much for your time. If people wanted to dig a little bit deeper into you, into your research, where would you send them? Well, I'd send them to two places. The one social media place I like is Instagram, just because it seems easier for me than others. Um, so Instagram, I guess, uh, would be one place. And then um, loveandwork.org. Loveandwork.org has a, a whole six-part Love and Work Leader series, which is which is all about these core, these core understandings, these core concepts. And uh, with the book, you just get free access to all of it. We did it with Harvard uh, mm-hmm. in partnership with them. So if you want to really dive into what is a love and work team, what is a love and work organization, what does a love and work relationship look like? If you're interested in that sort of content, then please go to loveandwork.org. And, and with your book, you'll be able to get access to all of it. Marcus Buckingham, his new book, Love and Work. Marcus, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Leader Chat Podcast. Chad, it's my pleasure.
And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. Chad, I loved your interview with Marcus Buckingham. I'm a raving fan of Marcus, and I think he's one of the best leadership thinkers out there. And this book is really unusual because it's all about love and work. And he's what he's really saying is that if you find what you love to do, you never, as I've always said, you never have to work another day in your life. And uh, some people ask me, you know, Ken, you're in your 80s. Why are you still writing books? Why are you still, you know, helping lead your company and all? The reason I am is why I love to do it. Uh, You don't have to work when you love to do it. Now, Marcus is really smart. He said, you know, not everybody has a job like you, Ken, you know, where you can really arrange it and do everything that you really love. Uh, But rather than leaving uh, an operation where you don't like what you do, he's trying to say, how do you figure out what you really love to do and how do you intertwine that uh, in the present job that that you have? I mean, if you love to talk to people, uh, what can you do to spend more time interviewing people and talking to them and asking their opinions and all? And it's just, uh, it's uh, how do you really redesign your, your job before you leave it? so that some of it, at least 20%, as he says, you'd absolutely love uh, what, you're, what you're doing. And uh, I think I ought to also comment about, uh, Chad said that I say uh, feedback is the breakfast of champions. And, and uh, Marcus interpreted that saying that when you give somebody feedback, you're telling them you know, about who they are as a human being and all that. No, that's not kind of feedback that I'm talking about that's the breakfast of champion. If you look at the one-minute manager, there's three secrets. One-minute goal setting, all good performance starts with clear goals. Once people know what the goals are and they got to be observable and measurable, your job as a manager is to wander around and see if, first of all, if you can catch them doing something right. And catching them doing something right is what? on the observed behavior that you've agreed upon. And you say, God, I see you're really doing well. You know you know how it made me feel? It made me feel proud uh, and all. And so I'm not telling him who he is as a human being. If the performance isn't going as well as we should, now we get to uh, one minute redirects. And so when I go there, I say, John or, or Chad or somebody, <laughs> you know, that area we talked about, uh, one of your performance areas, doesn't look like it's going quite as well. Why? Because we both have the same numbers and all. Is there anything, do you agree that it's not going well? You want to first ask that. And they'll always agree, you know, if the numbers aren't really going in the direction you want. Then you say, is there any way I can help you move in that direction? I'm not getting into him as a, as a person and all. So, uh, Marcus, you're all right. I think this is great. I love and work. What a great title. And I think young kids really understand it. And we need to understand this as older people. How do you do work where you predominantly love what you're doing 
as much as you can. So take care of yourself. Good on you, Marcus and Chad. Again, you're not too bad. God bless. Thank you.